Hello and welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. With me, Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher and a teacher educator and you can follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. I welcome your feedback and suggestions by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, was published by Routledge and is now available as an audiobook narrated by me. You can listen to or download hundreds of previous Inside Education podcasts by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on Podcasts. The topic on the programme this week is Movement and Physical Education. To talk about that, I am pleased to be joined by Professor Stefan Ward, who is a Professor of Sport and Movement Studies at Central Washington University and is currently a Fulbright Scholar in Dublin City University. He has a particular interest in positive youth development. One of his goals as Fulbright Scholar is to develop a sustainable partnership between Dublin City University, Central Washington University and Project Fund Direction. Project Fund Direction is a non-profit organisation in Dublin dedicated to increasing physical literacy opportunities for young people, especially younger girls. And Stefan Ward is providing professional development for staff and volunteers at Project Fund Direction. He is also contributing to the B.Ed programme in Dublin City University's Institute of Education. You'll really enjoy this week's podcast if you believe in the power of sport to promote positive youth development and if you're interested in how to promote the involvement of young girls in sports. Stefan Ward provides suggestions for teaching physical education in all weathers and with limited resources. He shares experiences of summer camps where college students support young people's participation in sports. When I met up with Professor Stefan Ward through Zoom, I first asked him how it came about that he was based in Dublin City University at this time. I have a long history of doing positive youth development as part of my research agenda. I have several programs in Washington and I actually created a a program in Guam that was very similar to that a colleague there. But my advisor in graduate school actually teaches in Limerick now. She's a professor in Limerick. And so when I asked her, I said, you know, I have an interest in Ireland. Uh, my, rel- my heritage is Scotland and Irish. So I was like, you know, you have any plans? And she connected me to a local nonprofit here called Project Fund Direction. And I set it up and brought my students over. And it's been awesome ever since. And we started, we first started out in 2016. So. so some people might not have heard of Project Fund Direction. Can you tell us a bit about that? So Project Fund Direction is a local nonprofit that works with what we call underserved youth. Kieran Duffy would be the proprietor of Project Fund Direction. And basically he, his philosophy, which is backed up by the research, is that inner city girls in particular don't have the same access to physical literacy and physical activity as other people, especially the really young ones, because, uh, you know, they, if, if it's a three-kilometer walk to a park, maybe they're not, you know, and their parents are both working, they don't have access to go. And even particularly worsened by the COVID situation where they're all stuck inside. Whereas younger boys, their dad or some person in their life might take them over to a, you know, a place and have them play a football or hurling or Gaelic football or something. There's all these avenues for, that are grassroots for boys, which aren't always available for girls. And then apparently, according to Kieran there, once they get up to a certain skill level, they can kind of get into a feeder program and then they're kind of plugged in to go higher and higher and, and continue at a local club, possibly professionally if they're good enough, but at least in the sense they could have a, an active lifestyle that way. Whereas girls, if you don't have the skills, once you come of that age and have that opportunity, you're competing against other people for very limited, limited options. You mentioned a term there, physical literacy. What is physical literacy? So the idea of physical literacy is kind of the ability to move with competence and confidence in a wide variety of different physical activities. So it's not necessarily that you're good only at one sport, but it's the idea of being well-rounded and having the overall competence in and around the physical and having what we call self-efficacy, which is a specific type of confidence that you're comfortable doing that. And, and some of the research shows that we hope that people who are active for a lifetime generally have better, more happy, they're, they're healthier. But this idea of physical literacy can promote that act, being active. So we tend to tend to continue to do things we're good at. And so the idea of physical literacy is by the time that a student gets to an opportunity, 
they may not be perfect at hurling, for instance. I, I'm certainly not. I've practiced it a few times and not really good at it, but I'm I'm better than I would be if I didn't have physical literacy and other things. A lot of skill transfer from that. And so we want to get students confident enough in their physical abilities to be able to know that if they train, they can specialize and get better and hopefully have fun and be active for a life. And for young girls, is this something that they have when they're young and they lose, or is it something that they just don't sufficiently develop? Um, I would say that it's it's not, so it's not a negative. It's it's more like it's an asset that needs to be fully developed. So they everybody has, it's like a plant, right? Everybody has that inside them. And if you water it and you give it nutrients, whatever, it can grow and get better. Obviously, though, like little little kids, when they're walking around, they're learning all the different things about how to move and how to explore their world. And as they get bigger, more opportunities do that lead to that continued growth. Less opportunities kind of stifles it. Um, so it's always there and it's never, never too late to get to learn this physical literacy. But it's, you know, we want to take advantage of that from the beginning so they can really enjoy all that life has to offer. And Project Fund Direction, is that something that started in Dublin or did it start somewhere else and was adopted in Dublin? Um, it, it has been the concepts behind Project Fund Direction, the physical literacy idea and opportunities for underserved youth has been around for a long time. But Kieran started it, I believe he said he started it in 2014 um, and he started small. Kieran played, uh, was brought up playing soccer and realized that maybe his daughter didn't have the same opportunities that his son did. And realizing that other other girls that he knew that he didn't see a lot of them when he I think he works at the Belvedere Club or he was associated with them. And so he noticed that there weren't as many girls as there were boys there. And so the more he got into it, he kind of really liked the idea. And then uh, he started expanding the programs and he's gone to local councils and gotten some funding from the Dublin city or the government of, uh, of Ireland to fund some of his projects. And now he's since he's connected with me, he's also connected with Maura Coulter, who's a professor at uh, DCU, um, as well as a couple of other people in and around the area. And he's connected with the Dyspraxia Association of Ireland. So he's made all these great connections with people who also share similar ideas of, you know, let's do really good things for our youth in and around the area of the physical. And you're in Ireland as a Fulbright Scholar uh, from the United States. Is physical education a subject in elementary, middle or high school in the United States? Yes, it's it's uh, required K through tw- it's K through 12. So our system is I'll, I'll just go ages instead of the kindergarten or whatever. But basically, it's required ages five through age uh, 16. Um, and it's it's usually it varies from district to district and from state to state, depending on how much they invest in it. For instance, uh, there are certain states like Arizona that require daily physical education. Um, there are certain states that don't. Uh, in most states, there is, which is different from here at the primary level, there would be a physical education specialist. So I'm a teacher educator. So I teach people who are going to be, are called them pre-service teachers, but they're going to become physical education teachers. I've been working with students here who are generalist teachers who have an interest in physical education my understanding of it. So it's slightly different there, but still, uh, I would say in most elementary, it averages out one to two times a week with a specialist. Um, and that would be anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes each time, which is well below what they recommend for daily physical education would be 60 minutes. Both here and there, though, there's an idea that the generalist classroom teacher will be responsible for making sure this physical literacy happens as well as physical activity. But the benefit of having a specialist is they know the shortcuts and the tricks and the pedagogical practices to help maximize activities for little kids. So, for instance, one of the things I see when I also teach generalist teachers who have to have a credit of PE before they can graduate. But what I see from them are things like uh, you have relay races here. Of course. Yes. yes. Okay, so relay races are horrible for physical activity because most of the people are sitting there waiting their turn to come back and forth. And so that's one of the tricks of the trade or the different types of formations that you want to get rid of. You know, in elimination games like dodgeball, I mean, first off, it's bad because you're throwing objects at each other. And How would you justify that to a judge? Well, Your Honor, I, I thought it was cool that I let them throw objects at each other. But there's also the sense of the people who need the practice the most get out first because they're not good. So they get hit in the head and they have to sit out until the next round whenever that happens. 
So there's a whole lot of issues like that that physical education specialists are trying to deal with so they can maximize the, the, the quality classroom time dedicated to physical education so that it's more of the physical literacy and the activity and not just the physical activity. And when the specialist goes into a class, do they work in collaboration with the class teacher, the generalist class teacher, or is it time off for the class teacher? Um, in a in a good setting, I'll just I'll pretend like the perfect setting would be like, for instance, when I was a physical education teacher, um, the students would come to me for the their their time. So they would come to me each week, Tuesday at 10 a.m. till 10:45, and I would work with the students on my particular curriculum goals. But I was partnering with the teacher. So the rest of the week, I would give my I would give this teacher a set of activities and lesson plans so the students could who I, I taught them how to say working on throwing and catching. The rest of the week they would practice that. And I'd have cue cards that I'd give to the teachers. She could, she didn't have to do too much planning, but she could say, yeah, you guys know what to do. You're going to do these things. And that's a really good example. Oftentimes, though, that doesn't happen. It's the teachers will do. You know, because they're not they're not specialized, so they don't they might play kickball because they think it's an easy, fun game and it might be fun. But most of the time you're waiting around not doing anything. So you really can. Can you consider that physical activity? Not really. I mean, you kick, you run the bases and then you wait either on the outfield or by the fence waiting to kick. So um, and a really good program, though, there is the idea that the, the 60 minutes a day, if you're going to achieve that, you have to involve the classroom teachers. And the schools should be a partnership. If we're teaching the whole the whole child, we all should work together anyway. So really good program. The teachers will drop off the students and they get their planning period. But then the, te- the PE teacher will connect during the classroom teacher, maybe in the mornings or something, and say, here's the activities for the week. And that's, that's when I, I give them a little packet, had everything's laminated, so I could give them the packet and they could give it back. And that way I could reuse it year after year. But I think that's the optimal idea is that sort of synergy between the two. And I'm not sure if you've had a chance to look at the Irish physical education curriculum, but I was going to ask you from what you know of it, is it similar to or different from the curric- the kind of curriculum you'd find in the United States? Um, it, it has some similarities. I know that, and I'm not a specialist, so please don't quote me, whoever's listening, um, I, uh, I do know that it's undergoing major revisions at the moment, um, especially in physical education. Actually, one of my, my Missy Parker uh, was one of my, she was my advisor, the one that connected me here. She, I know she was involved in the process right before she retired. Um, but yeah, I, I do know it's undergoing some. But yeah, we all have the same goal in mind, which is the idea of getting kids act, active and physically literate for life so they can enjoy the benefits of physical activity as well as physical education. And in your view, what does an effective PE lesson look like? Wow, uh, put me on the spot there. An effective lesson is, so about 50% of the time, um, you would want towards the moderate, what we call moderate to vigorous physical activity, which means the kids are sweating, you know, they're breathing hard, they're getting the benefits of physical activity. But to get the benefits of physical activity, you have to hit that moderate to vigorous level, and you have to do it more than five days a week. Um, and so ultimately a good lesson would have the hallmark of 50% to the moderate to vigorous physical activity. It would have maximum engagement or time on task. So you'd have, a, you'd have a, what, what a, like if you had a 90 minute period, you would make an appropriate level of tasks that were geared towards helping the students learn what you wanted them to learn that day to meet your learning outcomes, but also to be active. You know, and certain there are certain things like if you're learning to rock climb, there's a lot of safety involved. So you're teaching them how to tie the knots, how to do certain holds, but it's not super active. So in a lesson like that, you'd have to build in something outside of that that help the students be active to get their heart rate up to that point. Then once the students learn how to do all the safety features, rock climbing can be very active. Uh, but there are certain lessons, certain things. So I would say that a, be- a good lesson would blend all of those. It'd be at the You'd have to have differentiation of instruction. And by that, I mean, you. so you have the, every, if you know what a bell curve is, every lesson has, our, has students who are at the lower level and students at the higher level. So you differentiate your instruction so that you're meeting each student where they are. Um, I particularly believe in offering some choice. So allowing the students within the parameters of a good lesson 
what they can choose to do. And this can be, they can, they can vary the equipment. So you can give them better equipment as they get better, easier equipment to work with. It can be, I can choose my partners maybe to work with. So I've got the social aspect of it. So all of a really good lesson would have the moderate to vigorous physical activity, developmentally appropriate activities to help meet what you did that were both good for their level and for the time that you have. And as well as I like to add in some student voice, which is allowing the students periods to reflect uh, with each other, with peers, as well as with the teacher on how well they're doing. And that can really feed into your final thing, which would be assessment. So you want to teach them things, you want to get them active, and you want to be able to assess that at the end to see if they met your goals. Very often when people think of assessments, they think of tests. What kind of assessment is appropriate for uh, physical education lessons? Um, we have what we call learning domains, edu education in general does. So there's the physical, the cognitive, which is mental, and the affective. And so you can do assessments in all of these. There are um, also summative assessments, which are at the end. These are typically like, did the students learn whatever I want to do? You can also assess uh, physical fitness. If you've been practicing, the problem I have with assessing physical fitness is if you've been dedicating your lessons towards physical fitness, it's good to assess it. If you've been talking about physical fitness, but not having the students encourage it, then you're, you're basically measuring something that you didn't do anything with. Uh, so there's a lot of um, what we call authentic assessments. So I've seen people, uh, teachers will come up with, have students make their own videos. So the students will talk about what they, what they learned and, and how they learned it and then show a demonstration of that. So having a student do a visual assessment. You can do a, a cognitive assessment, like a, a standard test, if you're teaching tactics and strategies, or if you're talking about, you know, the components of fitness, you know, neuromuscular um, fitness, endurance, flexibility, all that kind of stuff. So you can, if you're teaching them classroom cognitive concepts, it's okay to measure that with a test, but I like to put it into, into practice. So if I was going to, for instance, play volleyball, I wouldn't assess the students by having them hit a ball against a wall, because that's not something you do in volleyball. If I was going to do hurling, I'll give you an Irish example. I wouldn't assess the students on their ability to hit a ball, ball against the wall 10 times. I would assess them in a game. But if they were lower skilled, I would, I would obviously modify the game to the level the students could be successful. And then I would measure the process of the student holding the stick correctly, stepping, bringing the stick back and following through, as opposed to how many points they scored. Right. So the idea of the process versus product and with younger students is more important to to assess the process, because if we know if you're good at the process, the product will come. And did you say that there are some standardized tests for physical education? Yeah, I mean, you could do you could do cognitive stuff very easily. You can also do skills test. So if you teach students juggling, for instance, you could there are. You can show, okay, are you using the hands correctly? And you can look at each one of the cues. And then are the, is the students holding, keep their arms, elbows at their side? Are they able to successfully juggle? How many times in a row can they do? Uh, there's really, thing. if you think about, if you're watching a gymnastics meet or a dance meet, the judges are looking for certain things from the, from the participants, and that's what they assess them on. So you could definitely do uh, a standardized type of test based upon this group. Now, the, the problem is, you know, when you, where you end up in a race kind of depends on where you start, you know, so you've got some students who come in with a higher level of skills and some students with a lower level. And so it's important to understand where your students are in terms of how you're going to assess them. But typically as long, for me, as long as you're using the formative assessments to help the students learn, yeah, there's a lot of really cool ways you can do it. Imagine a scenario where one of your students went to you and said that they'd been appointed to a, a physical education position in a school, primary or post-primary, and they, they found that there was no equipment at all in the school for physical education. What would you say would be a wise investment in terms of equipment for physical education? Where would you start? That actually happened to me. Um, I was a teacher and I had $75 to spend over three years or equipment. And, and, you know, a lot of it would depend. I typically would say that what they should do their research on the area they're in. For instance, if uh, I like soccer or football for one, for one thing, because it's cheap, all you need is a ball and a field, you know? And so 
Dance is another one. So I would instruct my students to think about things that they could do that didn't require very little equipment that were still in the in the curriculum. I would also recommend that they look at if soccer is popular and if there are lots of opportunities in the community to do a sport or an activity, that would be something that I would I would push towards. You know, for instance, we have uh, really premier rock climbing areas. So a lot of our a lot of our program is outdoor education based. Um, and they're allowed to do that. Uh, hiking and other types of sports are relatively cheap. Um, there's not a whole lot of equipment, good shoes, maybe a backpack, something like that. And you can go out for a day and show them how to walk and see different things. Um, so a lot of what I do is have them know your area. What's our, what are opportunities that your kids are going to have to go and practice and have them practice in some of those as well. And then there are I say write grants, you know, there's all kinds of companies out there that are willing to sponsor you, uh, especially if you're like, hey, I'm a broke PE teacher and these are great kids, but they don't have access to that. Uh, and, and in America, for instance, the United States Tennis Association used to be one of the places I would have students go to to get free rackets. And so there's opportunities to bring in equipment. There's homemade equipment options. You know, you can do things. Kids bring in milk cartons and you fill them up and you cut them open and turn them into scoops so you throw a ball and they try to catch the scoop with the, the carton so the big plastic ones you know not the, the really big ones like the gallon jugs okay. i'm sorry you probably don't i don't know what the metric conversion of a gallon is even the large um bottles of water even yeah, my, my. yeah. And so that that is a, a very good a good point not not every and that we have a whole class on how to differentiate equipment and then how to make equipment and and we we sort of talk about when you have students with special needs, then that's part of what you you could practice learning equipment that would help that student be successful. But take that same practice and look at every student, where they're at, what do they need? So having having specialized equipment is great, but you can, you know, you can make do. Parent donations, that kind of stuff as well. And in terms of the kind of activities they'd be doing or that you'd be planning for, would they be like towards the junior end, I presume it would be a lot of throwing and catching and maybe as they get older, a bit more balancing. Would that be right? Or if you think of it like an hourglass or a funnel, right? At the very beginning, I, I teach my students through what's called the skill theme approach, which is the idea that I'm teaching them skills. Instead of teaching them football or soccer, I'm teaching them kicking and running and jumping. So I teach them the basic physical literacy skills or skill themes as I know in my world. And that would include jumping, hopping, skipping, running, all the things that um, you kind of do that are locomotor skills, so moving around. And then there's body control skills like gymnastics and dance and things where you come into that. And there's movement concepts like rhythm and time and space. Kids understand, you know, because when you're running around in a big group of kids, one of the things you have to teach the students to do is be aware of their space so they don't crash into other people. Uh, and then the skill themes would be throwing and catching kicking, striking like tennis uh, with a short-handled instrument or striking like hurling with a long-handled implement, implements, uh, you know, catching and throwing, jumping. There's all sorts of the movement concepts and the skill themes that you would basically make up all of what human movement would be about. Now, can I teach them all of that in 30 minutes once a week? It's hard. But if I have my students at the primary level for five years, it's, you know, it's doable as I, as I think about where they are and building up from that. So, and then you get into the secondary, now that they're good at most of these skills, they began to specialize in something that they like, in which case, you know, they, they might travel for a sport or an activity that may be good at rock climbing or martial arts or dance or something. And so you have this idea of, if I get them the basics, the bottom of the pyramid, they get to specialize in what they want to at high school which then opens up into what do you want to do for your life? You know, and if I can teach you how to learn, you know, that's that expression. If you teach someone how to fish, they're good for a lifetime. If I could teach you how to learn a new skill and have this physical literacy, there may be some new sport, maybe just like Harry Potter and maybe we're getting brooms and people all of a sudden wanted what's a game called Quidditch, you know, where they're flying around that. Maybe that's possible one day. Well, bam, you know how to learn new skills, learn the new skills for that and you're good to go. When children are playing sports and, and learning PE, how can the risk of physical injury be minimized? Um, there's a lot of, again, that's that pedagogical stuff I was talking about. We teach our students how to handle that. So, for instance, if you're going to have students throw, one of the, they obviously, when you throw your ball, you're going to have to retrieve it and come back. 
So if you have a bunch of students in a big line throwing, there's all these chances somebody will get hit or bang into each other or something. But you can do a formation, like for instance, you could have them in a circle throwing outward, which greatly limits the amount of opportunities for them to get hit. There are safety things where you talk about, like if you're with a hurling stick or a hockey stick, especially, there's the backswing. So you're going to set up students in a way that they're spread out and they're not worrying about that. You're going to try to avoid uh, games and act like whole game activities are also a, a, a physical activity killer because if there's one soccer ball and 30 people, there's not a lot of engagement there. What we want is each a ball for each kid so they can practice that. But instead of having a regular size soccer match, what I would do is break them into smaller games and spread out in their space. So I would have a game of two on two or three on three, which really ups the level of engagement and physical activity. Because if you're one person in a group of 30, you can probably hang back and just chill. But if you're one on one, you're you're it. You know, it's either you or the other guy. And then you're basically moving back and forth. So spreading out equipment, reinforcing safety concerns. And back what I talked about, one of the concepts or movement concepts that I teach is space. We do whole lessons on understanding space and knowing like how self space is and how space relates to speed. So if you're going faster, you need more space, you know, and then you apply that into a soccer game when you, you want to get into the open with the ball so you can dribble really fast. And so there's a concept of each of those that we practice and reinforce to our students how to do that. And then there's the um, awareness. As a teacher, you're aware of what you learn to be sort of all over the place. So you're scanning the room to see where, where potential issues are. And you'd be like, oh, Jake, Susie, don't do that. You know, spread out, stuff like that. So that's typically how a lot of that gets modified. And a lot of people who criticize physical education who say it's dangerous, well, it, we can minimize the risks of danger, but leading a sedentary lifestyle is going to equate certain things automatically. You're not gonna, you're not gonna be fully actualized in the best that you can be is you're sitting around a lot. One of the objections that teachers sometimes have to physical education teaching in Ireland is the weather. That if you don't have a good gym in your school or a good sports hall, that for a lot of months of the school year, it can be wet and windy outside and mightn't be the most suitable environment for going out. But still, you've said that a lot of your teaching is outdoors in, in PE. Can you say a little bit about how you deal with the bad weather side of of teaching outdoors yeah I, I grew up in the southern part of the united states where it, did, it didn't rain as much as here but it did rain a lot and i didn't have a gym so there are uh, classroom activities there's workout videos and things that you could utilize in the classroom you know there are training things to dance you can do dance in the classroom you just move your desks social dance like square dancing or you know different things like that i've seen teachers use hallways um, so, you know, you go to a part of the school and you tell the kids they have to be quiet, but then you do certain things in the hallways. Um, we, uh, you on a day where like today where it's not really raining, but it is a little wet, you go outside and, you know, you do your best. And we've had, um, programs where kids bring other sets of shoes to school so they can go outside and they, they can play and be active and then come back in. It is nice to have a hall to yourself where you can practice and play or a pitch or something, but there's ways around it with proper planning, you know, and then uh, there's lessons you can do inside and other spaces that we have uh, like cafeterias, you know, where the school kids would eat sometimes, but when the kids aren't in there eating during the lunchtime in the mornings, you can clear some of that out and utilize that. I've taught classes on stages, you know, up on the front, just make sure nobody falls off on the side, put up cones or something. So there's, you know, there's ways that you can be creative, but sometimes it's just a matter of, you go outside, you tell the students, bring your coats, you know, bring your rain jackets. If it's cold, cold outside, bring your winter jackets, you know, bring your jellies. That's what they're called, right? The rubber shoe, wellies. Wellies, wellies, yeah, <laughs> wellies. Um, we, we touched on the idea of differentiation earlier. I wonder, could you say a little bit more about how, you know, I, I'm, and you can choose the topic, but if you were to differentiate a specific topic for a, a PE lesson, how you'd go about it, what, what it might look like in practice. So one of the things that I do when I differentiate is I think about the different ways, the different levels. Like what would a higher skill level student want or need? And a lot of those are games and, and really challenges. What would a lower skill kid need? And those are, they want games and challenges, but you want to make it successful. So changing the rules of the game or activity and thinking about different areas. 
let's go with striking. So like tennis or um, pickle. You have pickleball here. Pickleball. 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 No, I don't think so. I. Okay. So it's like tennis, but at a, a low level court. So let's just go with tennis then. Uh, I would basically I could change the game so that they didn't have to worry necessarily about playing full blown tennis, but maybe just have them hit a ball over the net to a partner. You can make the game cooperative. So my object is to hit the ball to a partner. Partner catches it, hits it back to me. You know, instead of the com competition issue, they're now cooperating to see how many points they can get doing that to each other. If you want to add competitive, you could say, uh, you guys count the number of points in the court next to you. If they get more points, they win. But that's still that cooperative nature. So you can play around with the rules if you want to make something easier, for instance, like you're playing um, football and you want to make it easier, instead of a goal, you have a line. You kick it across the line from a certain point, you get a point. You know, if you're playing basketball, if you – I tell – a lot of my students are afraid to take a shot. So I say if you try to shoot, you get one point. If it hits the backboard, that's two points. If it goes in, that's three. If it hits the rim, that's two points. You know, and so you change – change the aspects of the game to meet, to make it easier or harder. Because if I say, can you take this quarter and hit um, a sign that's, you know, hundred meters away, you're not gonna be able to do that. But if I say, just take a ball and throw it that way, they can be successful at that. So you change that. Then the equipment, I can give them rackets that are easier, that are lighter, uh, the ones that have larger handles. I can use a foam ball instead of a tennis ball. So they bounce a little bit easier and they're slower. I can take it so that I uh, offer the students, I call it challenge by choice. And they, they can choose which, like when I have a game, let's say you have a soccer game, I'll have three courts. I'll have the, I just really want to practice with my friend, which gives them ways they can compete, but very easily and very simple skills. I kind of want to play, but I'm really not interested in the Olympics or people that are really crazy at it. So that's then. And then I can have, this is the Olympic level if you want it. You want to be in the Olympic level, everybody's going to go hardcore, full out. It'll be really challenging and great. And I let the students pick which one they're at. And occasionally you'll get a student who picks the wrong one, not the wrong one, but they pick one because they want to be with their friends. I might have to pull them aside and say, you know, why don't you participate in this one? And if you can make a three correct hits, then you can move on. Or I can change opportunities like that. So having... Having choices the students can make with equipment and how many times they want to do something can be really an easy way that you can differentiate between their needs. And I love that choice because if you teach the, if you create a positive learning environment, most students will pick something they can be successful at. And then you prod the ones that are getting it. You say, why don't you try the little harder level? You know, if you did it five times in a row, now try it five times in a row from five feet back. Cool. Or, hey, why don't you move up a little bit until you get it five times in a row and then move back? So there's lots of really cool things that a specialist in physical education will spend their entire you know, time at the university learning all these little tricks. And then some of them are generic and some of them are sport specific. Stefan, if we move to um, the work that you do uh, at home at Central Washington University, you're, you, you are area program director for the physical education school health program. What does that position involve? The position involves teaching, so under teaching my students, and I teach the pedagogy classes. It also involves scheduling. That's one of the things I've got. Even though technically I'm on sabbatical, I still got to do my work there. So creating schedules, scheduling the classes, making sure the gyms are available, that each one of the teachers' specialty goes to where they're wanting, helping facilitate other people's research projects, you know, with the limited resources we have. Uh, oftentimes, you know, there's a hierarchy. So the, the provost will tell the dean who tells the chair, who tells me, and I tell the faculty. So there's some um, preventing, uh, submitting information and things like that, celebrating the things that we do and supporting the students, you know, like uh, what, what student uh, we recommended. Our organization is called Shape America, School Health and Physical Education America. And one of our students was the teacher of the year or the student teacher of the year there this year. So that was awesome. And one of the things we did as a group is vote on which one of our students we want to put forward for this kind of position. Uh, we have a student organization. So we talk about what the student organization is doing and communicate with each other. So really the director position is there's a lot of working with other faculty. And then I let students into the program. So there's a process that they have to do to apply. I check their GPA, make sure the classes they have are good and that they're able to move forward into the program and be successful. 
And then I'm also the advisor. So they'll come to me if they're having trouble or if they need a signature to get into a class or something like that. So it's a lot of managerial stuff. And you did your doctorate on, um, in physical education. What area did you study for? Uh, positive youth development. So basically, I started out by working with kids in after-school programs and things like teaching personal and social responsibility through physical education. What I got, what I did in my master's program. And so and then I eventually replicated a program in my doctorate. And I studied atmosphere or classroom climate in after-school programs and how they, they modified things. So my research is really focused on what they call self-determination theory, which means people need three things to be happy uh, and successful. One is relatedness, getting to know other people. One is competence, which would be learning to be skillful and having that self-efficacy. And the final one is autonomy. And so what I wanted to do is maximize, my research was on creating a positive atmosphere by maximizing opportunities for autonomy, relatedness, and competence. And we do that in a variety of ways, like create an environment where there's no put downs, where the students have input, so they're able to choose what, how much of what they want to do. Like one of the things in my program, they had a league, so they competed against other teams. They were 12-year-olds, 12 and 13-year-olds. But I said, you guys want to play more today or do you want to practice more? And I was thinking they'd always say they wanted to play more. We do it internal. But they were like, we're getting killed in our league. We want to practice more. So I let the students choose some of that, working with their friends. And so I started that idea. And then that's what I really loved. And I, I enjoy teaching pedagogy to students. So when I became a professor, I kind of blended the two together. And I thought, you know, what are some great ways could I create after-school programs where my students could sort of see and practice. And so from a pedagogical perspective, you know, if you go into a school, the school has their own agenda, they have their own curriculum, they have all these things, and you put your students in there and they learn that. But I wanted my students to be able to create their own agenda and their own curriculum and things that they were happy. So, and I wanted to teach them how to do the things like how to get student input from their students and what to do. So we would run after-school programs where the students would come in. My students, we'll call them pre-service teachers. They would come in and they would help me teach. And they would learn to teach by watching me teach, but then taking responsibility for themselves. So, And then I'd have them connect. So I'm teaching my students about relatedness. They get together in these little pods and they teach together. And then I taught them competence. They would be skilled at what they wanted and, and help to practice the teaching aspect of it. And then they would have autonomy. I would, so I'd gradually back off and let go of my control of the class and let them do it. And then I found that that was really cool. Uh, but a lot of times the students would have other commitments during the regular year, right? They'd have another class at three o'clock, they couldn't come or they'd be able to come one semester, but not the next. So I thought, what if I created a cool program overseas. And so my friend, uh, Mark is Chamorro, which is the indigenous peoples of Guam. Um, and so, which is the U S territory, but in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific ocean, I, and I thought too, I'd tell the students, we're going to go to the beach. We're going to teach kids. It's going to be awesome. And so we did that for five years and it was great because there was a local summer camp there that was interested in, I mean, we're basically free labor and we're skilled. So my students would come in and we would teach physical education and health concepts at this summer camp in a way that made it fun. And the summer camp would advertise that, hey, we've got the, um, they basically, we've got these people from America who are coming in and BP teachers and they were going to make it really fun. And so that we sort of, we were able to design that curriculum. And was that done remotely or face-to-face? -face? We flew out there and did it face-to-face. -face. Oh, wow. That was the model that I used to, to work. When I asked Missy about Ireland, she said, Kieran is doing Project Fund Direction. And one of Kieran's his restrictions is he's one person. He's got 22, 20 camps now that he's working. You know, that's a lot of driving around. And he does, um, he does intensive camps in the summer that he couldn't possibly do all of them. And so it was perfect. When I and I he tells a story and I email him, he says, Yeah, here I am on my computer thinking about something. And this crazy dude says, Hey, I'm from America and I want to come over and teach your kids. What do you think? And so he sort of looked me up and then talked, he called Missy and said, What's up with this guy? And she said, Oh, he's just like that. He's good. 
And then it's been a great partnership for the last five years. Um, so so you, you've been bringing your student PE teachers over to Ireland to work with the Project Fund Direction? Yes. In the summer, he does those intensive training camps that are part advertisement and part kind of really good. And so my students will come over and they're not all PE students. Sometimes I'll get general education students, exercise science students. Basically, my motto is anybody that wants to work with kids in and around the physical, come on in. So we have coaches who come over. Primarily, I'd say the bread and butter of my program is PE teachers, like pre-service teachers who are physical education and health. But we get a lot of students who are interested in what we call the service learning aspect of it, which is learning by doing. So they come over here. We sit down for the first week and we we plan what we want to do. So I'm like, okay, here's my, here's the students and here's what Kieran wants us to do. Here's the skills that you guys have. How can we build a program around that? So then I, I kind of step back and let the students plan everything. And my job is basically like, no, that's dangerous. You can't do it. Or let's figure it out. And then they come to me and ask me questions. So I try my best not to go over and say, this is how I would do it. Uh, but if they come to me after a day that was really hard and they ask me questions, I, I can sort of try to prompt them into doing it. So they, they're immersed in it. It's again, that's that autonomy piece. You know, they are, they all have the autonomy to do it correctly, to do it. And it's amazing the difference when they come up, they have this sort of moment of dissonance where they're thinking, I want to play dodgeball. And then they see it and they're like, no, dodgeball sucks. Why would I do that? But then they're supported by their peers with better ideas and it blossoms into better teaching. And how, how is that funded? I mean, where do they stay when they come here? Who funds their, uh, uh, their flight tickets? Unfortunately, most of it's they pay for it. So there, I go through the international studies office that we have and I say, you know, so they have either, you know, some of them have a wealthy aunt or something who pays for it. Some of them borrow money. They're part of their student loans. They'll do it. There are all sorts of grants that the students can get, um, you know, international grants and stuff that they can. A few students have done that. You know, some of them will work the first half because we come in August. So they'll work the first half of the summer to pay for it. But unfortunately, I mean, I've I've been able to acquire funding to take three groups fully paid for to both Guam and Ireland. But most of the time, unfortunately, it is it is a class that the students get credit for. So if they're PE students, it's part of their major. If they're not, it's part of the gen ed program. So the students can get financial aid because it is a classroom setting and they are learning. I have outcomes and things I want to teach them. And one of the general education requirements is a service learning component, which my class meets. So I did, I did sort of tailor it so you can kind of, you know, you're not just on vacation because we're working for three weeks teaching kids and then we tour Ireland. So we actually get in a bus and we tour. I use elegant Irish tours and they pull up in their big van and we climb into there and we drive to Limerick. We see Bunratty Castle. We go into Killarney and hang out there for a few days. Then we go up to Galway, see the Cliffs of Moher, uh, the castle that's near uh, Kong. Bunches of different stuff that we do. So we do some social aspect of it. I go all over Dublin. You know, we go to do a Viking tour. So if you ever see one of those, the boats where they're driving around and so we take the students there. Wearing the helmets and the horns. Exactly, yeah. And then we go to... Um, uh, you know, there's all cool. The Guinness factory is one of the other things that we do from a cultural perspective. So the students, I want them to get a sense of, I love because they can come to Ireland and the language is, you can get by with English and the language is slightly different. So there is some learning where you're like, wait, that person said something. What do they mean? Oh, I'm, I could figure that out. Whereas if you were to go to Spain or somewhere like that, and you didn't speak the language it would be much harder. So I do like that aspect and they get the sense of the cultural aspect of it, what they, you know, what the kids are like, especially we go to places like East Wall, where it's maybe a little bit lower socioeconomic area. And what are the kids like? And then what are the kids like over in Talic, Talic, Tally? Talic, Talic, yeah. So we go there and then we've gone, we go to the Balsescan Reception Center. So we work with kids there from all over the world, which is awesome. And then we'll do uh, Darndale uh, and then O'Connell's, O'Connell schools. So we go there. So there's a lot of really different areas of the city they get to see and they understand. I make them study the area, talk to parents and stuff, find out what the kids there do and what they need. And then they create lessons based upon that. So there's reciprocity. We don't go in saying, we know everything, you know nothing, we're going to teach you. We go in saying, 
what do you guys want to do? Here's what we can offer. And then we sort of make that kind of benefit from that. And then I have them, like if one group's at Darndale and one group's at Eastwall, the next week I have them flip-flop. So then our students talk to each other and say, okay, this is what the kids there were like. Watch out for that little girl. She likes to wander off. Uh, this kid is awesome. He'll be really good. And they talk to each other and then they go to the next area. And where do your students stay when they're in Ireland? Um, we stay here at DCU on the Glasnevin campus. I like it because it's, there's a little bit of green right here. So there's Albert College Park next door. There's everything you need. So there's a pharmacy. Uh, you can walk down to the Eurospar or you can go to the Londis on campus. Within reasonable walking distance, you're on the major bus lines. There's plenty to see right here. It's centrally located. So when we get, we get picked up in a van and taken to the sites we teach at. So I really, DCU has been awesome. They give us a pretty good deal as a group, and then we all stay here in the dorms. And you said that one of your tasks is selecting prospective students for your, for your course. What are you looking for when you're looking for someone who has the ingredients to be a good physical education teacher? Like, I imagine it would be attractive for somebody who, you know, is really good themselves at sports, but not quite at an elite level. Would that be right? Yes. Um, and so typically the first thing is that they want to do it. So they sit in my office for their interview. And if they talk about like, I'm a, I'm a football coach and I want to coach football, like fo our football, American football, I'm a football coach and I want to coach football and this is how I got to do it. Then I'm like, you really don't, you're not a teacher. You want to be a coach. And then we have a coaching program as well. So I steer them into that and say, look, what you need to do is be in the sport management program over there. Because I don't want you to take up a teaching position just because it's attached to a coach position. It shouldn't be that way. The coach is a very small part of the job of a physical education teacher. So I get them in that. And then they're usually happier there as well. And so I look for that kind of aspect. Are they interested in working with kids? Uh, what's their, and their GPA is something I can work with. So if they have a, like a low GPA, grade point average, they have a really low grade point average, I find out why. And if they had a bad first year and they're like, well, you know, I partied too much, but then I got better and, you know, I'm, now I'm good. And, I've, and I can see like your first year you had Fs, the second year you had all A's and I let a man in the probation. We kind of work up like that. We're both lucky. And I guess there are places like New York, one of my colleagues works there where they have to disqualify people. So they only have like 100 spots and they have 500 people apply. They have to disqualify them. We don't have that problem yet. We could take up to 30 per quarter coming in, and usually we're around 20 to 25. So most of the time, unless I see a major red flag, you know, like we had one student who really wanted to do it, but he had a felony, so it was a kind of crime on his record. And it was unfortunate, but I was like, you know, you're not going to be able to get your teaching license because of that. So I tried to steer him into a different major, and he became a sport management major, and I think he's working for a professional team or something now. But those are kind of the characteristics. Do they have the, the disposition that they really want to be a teacher or are they interested in being a coach or a business person or something? We're coming to the end, Stefan. So I just want to ask you a few general questions about education just to, you know, uh, elicit your thoughts on them. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for in your view? I think that education is one of the great equalizers. Um, and I think that it's really important as you as you learn to become the best person that you can be and to open up as many opportunities as you can, I really feel like that's a, it's where school is, you know, being able to learn to read and write, do math and basic subjects opens up a lot of doors, but then the higher, when those doors are open, that elicits even more. From a physical education perspective, you know, having physical education in a school where kids learn it means they're much more, they're so impressionable at the early age that that's going to give them the opportunity to become physically literate. It means whenever these other opportunities come up, they're ready to take over. Now, like for instance, what I understand about learning a different language and I'm trying to learn Gaelic at the moment and it's very Gaelic Irish is very hard. <laughs> so my pronunciation is horrible, but we should be doing that when we're three, two, three, and four years old, not when you're in high school and college, you know, I mean, which is it's great to learn stuff when you're my age, but it's easier to learn when you're younger. So I think that having a free or a sponsored education opens up lots of opportunities for people, both 
economic and just in terms of becoming a critical thinker, making good choices throughout life, helping society get better as well as, as your family and yourself. I just think that it's it's just such a great thing to have opportunities because it opens up all the doors, to the rest of the stuff you want to do in your life. Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? Yes, two actually. One of them was uh, Coach Robinson, who was a history teacher, and I really enjoyed. He told history through stories, and he would kind of learn a lot about the class that he was coming in. So if we had a lot of African-American students. He would have a section on African-American history. If he had some students who were Asian, he would try to talk about some of that. So I just thought I really, really liked his teaching style, and I kind of adopted that. And then I had a midlife crisis when I was in the undergrad, and I met Dr. Tom Martinick, and so it was in my master's program. So I was a history teacher. I had my undergrad in history, and then I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with that. Do I want to get my PhD in history? And then I was, I was in a sport history program because I was also a fencing coach at the time. So I was wandering through this gym, and I saw these kids playing, and I saw all these my friends who are grad students there. And I was like, "What are you guys doing? This looks really cool." And they're like talking about that concept. And that's what really struck me is the that's where I got my start in positive development with Tom Martinick, um, who was a professor at UNCG. And he was like, hey, you know, this is what we do. And then I kind of volunteer. He said, sure. So I volunteered and then they I got an assistantship the next year to kind of help out with his program called Project Fund Direction. And that put my feet on the path. I became a PE teacher. Five years later, I went back and became a professor and I got at the University of Northern Colorado and then I've been loving it ever since. And what is your vision of an educated person? I think an educated person should be fully educated. So I believe that there's a psychomotor aspect of it as well as the cognitive, which is the easy part, or it's the part we do most in universities. But there's also an affective. So a lot of what I teach my programs are based on that idea of self-determination theory, but there's also something called teaching personal and social responsibility, which ties into the positive development idea that people have assets. People are not broken. So the whole idea of I'm going to fix you or you're, you're, you're deficient and I'm going to give you what you need is not true. Everybody has their own strengths. And I think a really good program builds upon the strengths that teaches people about the resiliency and the strengths that they have and allows them to grow in the ways that the student wants to. So having that option of choice, understanding that relatedness that we're all connected, and then whatever you want to become competent at, giving them the skills, how to learn to do that and how to be good at it. So that's kind of my overall philosophy on education. Who or what inspires you? Kids do, actually. A lot of my really good ideas I, I get from being inspired from my students and from working with kids. And then, of course, you know, great men like Tom Martinick and some of the other like Missy Parker, who was also was my advice. She really inspired me because um, she was giving a lecture at UNCG when I was a master's student that I watched part of. She was a visit, visiting there for a conference. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. She's also one of the authors of the skill team approach, which inspired me, which is the idea of teaching the base level of the students, like throwing and catching instead of baseball. And so, you know, lots of stuff like that. And then um, research. Sometimes I'm reading research and I'm thinking, wow, this person did that really well. How can I take that and make it work where I am? So it's like, for instance, I had a great idea earlier today when I was doing some research, looking up something else for somebody else. I thought, so I see it, but I created my own little weird, goofy chart here. Um, anyway, I've got some crazy scribbles there. So, um, Have you a favorite book, writer or blog about education? Not really. I think part of the people that I've, you know, there's there's so many people out there that do different things. I do have a particular group. So there's a group called the Teaching Personal and Social Responsibility, and they have an association. And so a lot of the different people from that area who I, I read some of the research. So I wouldn't say there's any one person, but there's a core of group that work on the idea of personal and social responsibility or peace through sport or the idea of positive youth development, then that that kind of inspires me. So there's, you know, and then Tom Martinick was the, the guy that inspired me the most. I, I really enjoy a lot of his research. He's retired now, but I really enjoyed a lot of him, which has kind of inspired me towards what I'm interested in doing, so. And is there any particular article or book by him that you would find yourself going back to? Yeah, there's a book that he did with several different authors, and I can send you the link, but it's, it's called Positive Youth Development in Sports. 
And so Missy Parker did a chapter in the book, Jim Steele, Tom Martinick, uh, uh, Professor Cutworth, and uh, Don Hellison, who is the original author of TPSR, who actually grew up teaching in some of the hard streets of Chicago and kind of created the model um, that we all sort of built upon. So Tom learned it from, from Don and I learned it from Tom and Missy. So there's, I think that's probably my inspiration. So I don't think there's any one particular thing I can remember. There are a lot of, a lot of the same similar ideas. If you could make one change to your current school in Central Washington University and resources were not an issue, what change would you make? One of the things that I would like to have is I would like to have an, a school on campus. So if I had a choice, I would have a university school that we were allowed to implement the policies and things that from the university there as sort of a, a laboratory school. So the kids would get to come there for free. We would be allowed, we'd be able to sort of practice them because, you know, the, the regular schools are, are great, but they have agendas that are given to them by the state and the government. And sometimes those go into conflict because a lot of that is very, for lack of a better word, it has kind of an educational momentum. So they're going a certain way. And if we're like, hey, we don't think that's right. We're not saying that it's wrong. We're saying we wanted to kind of go this way. It's very difficult to do. So I would like to have an area, two things, one that would be sort of a school like that and another one that has sort of a community outreach so that we could help because we're supported a lot by the community that we live in, which is a very small town in the mountains. And I would like to give back more. So I would, I would like for a way to provide after-school programs and stuff. Like, so I work in education. So I would be like, what opportunities can we provide for local kids? You know, not and make it more than just babysitting, but free opportunities for them to come after school and get tutoring or different types of activities. What programs we have that could give back to local businesses that that's kind of what i would like to see more of and we're going that way but the key thing you said is the resources are not an issue yeah. if, if resources were some billionaire should have said you want to do this i'd be like i tell you what we'll do let's go well if anyone's listening any billionaires listening they're welcome to, to contact you um, and finally stefan what from your own primary or elementary or high school or middle school education informs your practice in education today a lot of the mistakes and the bad things that I saw growing up and because I really loved the physical aspect of it. But then, you know, a lot of the stuff that I, I bumped into that didn't work. I never played football or uh, an organized sport. I always did pickup games. So my friends and I have our own league and we play that kind of stuff. I never had an actual sporting experience because I didn't like the culture that was involved in a lot of the sports at my school. It's very much win at all costs. And one of the coaches was, you know, sort of a, you know, I was like, I don't, you know, I don't want to win at all costs. I want to cheat or do anything else bad. So I would, I would say that um, I really got into a couple of really good, like I was, I, I took fencing when I was in uh, my first year of college. I did martial arts in high school. And so having those coaches who showed me that, you know, you could integrate the effective, like my martial arts coach in high school, he was just awesome. Charles. Uh, was very much in the affective domain. So he talked about using martial arts to make yourself a better person, to have the discipline, how to be good at school using the discipline. And then my fencing coach, Sally Robinson, in um, college was the same way. And I ended up becoming a, a fencing coach because I liked that that aspect of it. So a lot of what inspires me came from the really good teachers that I've had. I'm not against competition. I think it's very important, but I think it should be something that you, it's a tool that you should use, not the end all goal of what you want to be. And that was Professor Stefan Ward from Central Washington University, who is currently a Fulbright Scholar in Dublin City University. He is working closely with Project Fund Direction during his time in Ireland. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, remember you can listen to or download over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on the Podcasts tab. I'd also be grateful if you could review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. Get in touch with the podcast by writing to InsideEducationPodcast at yahoo.com. An audio version of my book, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is now available on Audible and most audiobook platforms. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney saying goodbye. Thank you for listening.